We're in a series called Habits to Live By, Old Way, New Way. So far, we've looked at the habit of rest and just in the culture that we live in, you know, I think we can all admit sometimes that we neglect rest and we would do well to rest. Rest is good for us. It's good for our hearts, good for our soul, good for all of us. Uh, We talked about rest. We talked about living a spirit-filled and not just filled, but led life that the Holy Spirit fills us, but leads us and guides us and directs our steps. And uh, last week, we talked about words and really just the power of words. And not just that, but the Word of God and how the Word of God changes how we talk to ourselves, how we talk to God, and how we talk to other people. And so this tonight, what we're going to talk about, I think kind of leads off from what we talked about last week. And they all kind of build upon each other. But tonight, we're going to be talking about right thinking, okay? What is right thinking? thinking. Now, I'll make a disclaimer right now. I am not a trained psychologist, okay? So I've elected not to go that route when I'm talking tonight. But what I do want to talk about is the scriptures. I want to talk about what the Word of God says to us, what the Word of God says to us about how as Christians we are to think, the mindset we're supposed to have, how we're supposed to live while we are in this world. Are you with me? So that's kind of where we're heading. So let me start. 2 Corinthians 5. And verse 17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Amen? The old has gone, the new is here. Now, speaking of new is here, was, I hope some of you made it out to come together last week. Anyone? Like, what an awesome event, right? Like, amen. 150 people baptized on Saturday, people coming to Christ. It was amazing. And we saw a lot of this here. A lot of this verse happened at that event. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, but the new is here. And as Christians, we are called new creations. And being new means that things are not the same and won't be the same after you come to know Jesus. They can't be the same. You see, when Christ invites us into relationship and to be a part of his kingdom, we no longer see things the same way, but we see them differently. We see them better. We see them from a new lens, if I could say it like that. There's a way of thinking that we had before we knew Christ, but after we meet him, everything changes. And, you know, at one point, maybe we allowed our thinking to be influenced by the world around us and by what the world said was important and by what the world was driving us to. But when you meet Jesus, you allow him to influence your thinking. And there's a right way of thinking for those who are new creations in him. And so we find that right thinking in the pages of scripture, through the word of God. There are numerous, numerous ways in which our, our thinking shifts after we meet and know Jesus, and things are never the same. But I want to be graceful to us too, because we're human too, aren't we, right? We all make mistakes, we all have some slip-ups, and we all got to be on guard that our thinking isn't being more influenced by anything outside of Christ, but that it's coming from Him. And so sometimes, you know, we're in a sermon series right now, sorry, where we're contrasting old ways and new ways, habits to live by. And sometimes embracing new things can be difficult, Let me talk about that for a second. How do you deal with change? Anyone? Good? Some of us love change, right? We just get excited about it. And, uh, you know, just it it excites us. We get so excited when things change. You know, I think I was that person like 15 years ago. 
But others of us, right, sometimes change bothers us, doesn't it? Sometimes just the thought of that word brings joy to some people and dread for others today. And I ask that question because in the Gospels we see Jesus bringing change into how people viewed a life of faith and was really changing a lot of the ways that those who follow God are to see God and to see others and to envision their priorities. And not everyone was happy about it. You see, the religious leaders of Jesus' day were actually quite bothered by a lot of the things that he said. And yet the change that Jesus brings is important and it's necessary in our lives. And while sometimes we can avoid change and sometimes things can work out okay, there are other times where avoiding change is catastrophic. And I believe that's true for those who come to know Jesus. Let me use an example from the business world. How many of you remember this place? Anyone? Right? How many of you miss this place? Like, come on, eh? You know, I, I miss going down sometimes and just picking up something and renting it. But, you know, Blockbuster was once the biggest video rental business in all of North America. Many looked upon Blockbuster as that place that kind of crushed the competition. Whenever a Blockbuster would move into a city or a new area, all the small shops, I think, got a little scared because they knew it was going to be tough to compete with that. And its dominance in the film renting industry was unprecedented. The company at its peak in the early 2000s was said to be worth over $5 billion. And it looked like smooth sailing. But then something began to shift. And we saw the winds of change arrive on how people were consuming their media content or their videos. And in 1998, and this is, this is a true, this is a funny, not funny, it's an interesting story. But in 1998, Reed Hastings was a disgruntled Blockbuster customer who was upset with late fees, okay? And felt he can do better with a new approach to movie rentals, started a company that was going to change how people would watch movies. Some of you may have heard of this company. It's called Netflix. There you go. Called Netflix. And so Blockbuster, from a business perspective, failed to see what lied ahead. Technology was changing the game, and the landscape of the market was changing right before them. And in the year 2000, they were offered the opportunity to buy out Netflix for a mere $50 million. Okay? And I say mere, not because it is mere to me. Trust me on that, right? <laughs> but because their company was worth $5 billion at the time. And here they had this opportunity to purchase and own something that had potential to be game-changing, but they decided to pass on the opportunity and continue to pursue their model of video rental stores and entertainment and late fees and making money like that. Long story short, things started to go downhill fast. And the decline of their company was evident as more and more media began finding its home online. And it was much easier for consumption. You know, you didn't have to leave the house. You know, prices were competitive. You see, Blockbuster tried a few tricks to, to stay alive. Anyone remember when they, when they came up with that no late fees thing, right? Like they, they had a promotion there right before they kind of ended. But as a business, they were kind of left behind and the damage was done. And they closed their stores, eventually filed for bankruptcy in September of 2010. Netflix, as of seven years ago, was said to be worth $70 billion dollars. And it's now said to be worth well over $100 billion. And I tell this story not to put salt in the wound of Blockbuster, by any means, okay? Not trying to do that here tonight. 
but because it illustrates what can happen when we fail to embrace change and continue to live with what we're comfortable with, hoping that it creates success in the future. You see, when we fail to allow our thinking to be challenged or changed, especially when it's changed by something far greater and better for you and for those around you, it doesn't work out well. You see, Blockbuster couldn't embrace new ways of thinking, so much so that they stuck to what they'd known, what they were comfortable to, what they grew accustomed with, and it kind of cost them everything. And so why all this talk about Blockbuster and Netflix? Well, here's why. Because I think it illustrates for us as Christians that when you become a Christ follower, you cannot simply be content with what was familiar and what was comfortable and what was normal for you before you made that decision to follow Jesus. Because everything changes. Everything changes when you meet Jesus. Amen? And you don't live in that old mindset. You don't live in that old headset that existed before Jesus. But Christ has come to transform and change everything. Your life will never be the same. And neither should the way that you think. There's a new way of thinking for Christians. And when we aren't thinking like Jesus wants us to, we're going to miss out on so much of what he has for us. And being in him and living for him is truly the best place that any one of us can find ourselves today. But it all starts with right thinking. And so the book of Romans, chapter 12, enough of this movie stuff, okay? says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You see, Paul has talked a lot throughout the chapters. He's thrown a lot of theology, study of God, in, in, in this book in Romans. And in chapter 12, he says, therefore, and he's about to shift it into something practical. And he says, therefore, in view of what God's done for you, in view of the mercy he's given you, offer yourselves to him as living sacrifice. That, 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 that's how you worship him. That's your spiritual act of worship, your true and proper worship, some translations say. And then he says, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to test and approve of what it is that God's will is. His good, perfect, and pleasing will. And so our job as Christians, when we come to know Jesus, is really just to offer ourselves to him. And recognize that there's going to be a shift taking place. There was an old way that we used to think, but Jesus has made us new creations. And there's a new way of thinking in him allowing God and his words to renew our minds. N.T. Wright, author, theologian, might still be the Bishop of Durham. I'm not sure. Someone look it up for me, okay? But he said this. He said concerning this verse, we must be ready to challenge those parts where the present age shouts or perhaps whispers seductively that it would be easier and better to do things that way. While the age to come, already begun in Jesus, insists that belonging to the new creation means that we must live this way instead. The key to it all 
is the transforming of the mind. Many Christians in today's world never come to terms with this. They hope they will be able to live up to something like Christian standards while still thinking the way the rest of the world thinks. It can't be done. Strong words from N.T. Wright. And so, if God wants to renew our minds, if God wants us to have a new set of thinking, well, then what does that look like? Well, I'll be honest with you, okay? This could be a 10-week series, okay? We could have a lot and a lot and a lot of ideas. So what I'm going to try to do tonight is throw out a few foundational truths and a few foundational ideas, I believe, for us as Christians, for us as new creations. But this is not exhaustive, okay? There's a lot of places and a lot of different directions that we can look here. But how does God renew our minds? How does our thinking change when you and I meet Jesus? What are some key truths that must guide our thoughts and lead us into right thinking? Well, here's a few thoughts on what right thinking is. Number one is that Jesus is Lord and he guides us. Amen? Jesus is Lord and he guides us. Before knowing Christ, we consulted ourselves often and decided that whatever we thought was best, that's what we were going to do. Or we would look to, to knowledge outside of ourselves that wasn't necessarily focused on the priorities of, of Christ and his kingdom. But before knowing Christ, we consulted ourselves and decided whatever we thought was best. But in him, we've been given the gift of his word. Amen? And the word of God guides our paths. It directs us. It teaches us how to live. It leads us into right thinking. Proverbs chapter 3 in verses 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. You see, the Lord calls us to trust him, not to lean on what we think is right or maybe our old way of thinking or maybe how we've done it before, but in all our ways, we look to him, we look to the scripture, we look to the word and he makes our path straight. You see, if Jesus is Lord, then not only can he be trusted, but he should be the one that we look to for in everything. Above our understanding, above our own ways, we acknowledge and look to him, and we trust that he knows what's best, that he knows how to guide us, that he can guide you, he can guide me. And this is best revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. In Psalm 119, Verses 9 to 12, it says, How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. You know, I just love how that ends. I love the desperation of the psalmist here, right? Teach me your decrees. Don't let me be led astray. Praise you, God, but teach me your way. Praise be to you, Lord. Lord meaning that the Lord is the one in control and the one to whom we submit to. And there's this plea just to teach us, to inform us, to guide us, to lead us into right and proper thinking. You see, right thinking begins when we confess that Jesus is Lord, but also when we trust him and his word to guide us and to guide us on his paths. Dallas Willard, one of my favorite writers and uh, professors, and he was a theologian. He did a lot of things, but he said it like this. He said, To bring the mind to dwell intelligently upon God 
as he is presented in his word, will have the effect of causing us to love God passionately. And this love will in turn bring us to think of God steadily. Thus, he will always be before our minds. He is whom we go to. He is the one that we turn to. I don't know if you're like me sometimes, but you run into a snag or something in life and you try to fix it on your own because we like to be self-sufficient, right? And then you finally get to the end of it and then you eventually go back to God and you have a conversation like this. Oh God, I guess I'll come to you, right? Such silly thinking. We can go to him first. We can go to him with everything. He will guide us. If you want your mind and thinking set on what is right, then you need to find yourselves in the scriptures and in his word and looking to him. Number two, another thing that leads us into right thinking is knowing that Jesus loves you. I feel so Sunday school saying that, okay? I really do, as I wrote that this past week. But Jesus loves you. And maybe some of us need to hear that tonight. That Jesus loves you despite what you've done, despite where you've been, despite what the past is. You know, Jesus takes that past and it's the past, right? It's the old is gone. The new has come. And you're a new creation in him. 1 John 4.16 says, So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God in, abides in him. And I think it's absolutely pivotal, as I was thinking about this this past week, that we understand this in our hearts and minds because the love of God motivates us and helps us in such a way that nothing else can. That nothing else can. You see, for some of us, it's difficult, I think, for us to fathom how much God loves you, how much God loves us. And we, so we can't simply accept his love and, and, and then turn to trying to earn his love and earn his favor and, you know, developing like this works righteousness in our lives and this gets tiring and it's not necessary for us to do. You see, the starting point to knowing that you are a child of God is to recognize that you're loved by God, that God loves you. And this isn't always easy for everyone, especially if you have a mindset that always wants to earn something or always wants to work for something or you just can't let something go. Sometimes it's tough to recognize that. And I think there's a temptation we face as people living in our world, and it's just this. We have a tendency to treat God sometimes like we treat business or, or, or trying to earn something. You see, business operates on a merit system most of the time. I work 10 hours a day, I expect to receive 10 hours of pay. And I think we sometimes can approach God with that kind of mentality. And then Jesus tells us a story about a bunch of people who worked in the vineyard, some worked 10 hours, some worked one hour, and yet they all got paid the same thing, right? And the point of that parable can offend us sometimes, but the point of that parable wasn't inequality, it was equality. That God loves you, God loves me equally, amen? He loves the person around you just as much as he loves you. God loves us. You know, and we got to be careful sometimes not to develop this mindset that we have to earn something from God. Or if I give you this God, will you just, you know, help me here? And, uh, you know, sometimes I think we try to impress God with our behavior. And uh, it can turn into religion. It can turn into like this, this work-based kind of righteousness. It's good to have good behavior. But the source of that behavior is because God loves you. Not because you have to earn something. Are you with me? 
And this can creep into our walk with the Lord if we're not careful because Jesus is always pushing back on this idea that getting to God is based on what you do or what you bring to the table. But Jesus is trying to get us to see in the scriptures that getting to God isn't based on our perfection or anything we do, but it's all about him and what he did and his perfect work on the cross, amen? And his finished work on the cross. You see, when I grew up, when I was younger, we attended the Catholic church where I grew up in northern Manitoba. And I, I, I struggled with this. This was a tough thing for me to learn that God loved me. I remember coming to faith when I was 18, and then when I was 20, going off to Bible college to study theology. And I remember getting there, and I just always had such a negative view of myself. And I, I just always thought that God was out to get me, or that he was angry with me, or he was upset with me, or that he was, you know, it just, I, I just wasn't ever doing enough. And I remember reading this book by an author named Philip Yancey called What's So Amazing About Grace. And I remember it just absolutely challenging my thought process, challenging how I've looked at God. And for the first time, probably in my second year of college, it took a while to work this out of me. I really started to see how much God loved me unconditionally, not based on what I did, but based on who he is and the love that he has for us. You see? And I spent so much time, I think, in my life trying to earn God's love, you know, and, 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 and trying to do these things. I don't want anyone else to fall into that because that's a tiring way to live. God loves you. He loves you, amen? And his love can motivate us far more than anything else can. We do, his love can motivate us into great works, into all sorts of amazing things. But we got to understand at the core of our identity that he loves us. He loves you. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. Children of God. Love lavished on you. Lavished is just like an absolute, like it's, it's like standing under like a hose, right? Like it's, it's lavished on you. That we should be called children of God. That's what we are. You see, the Christian identity, Timothy Keller always used to say this, is truly liberating and freeing as it's the only identity that is actually received and not achieved. Let me repeat that. The Christian identity, our identity in Christ, is always received and not achieved. And this has a big effect on how we think and whether we fall into right or wrong ways of thinking, which leads to this truth. Number three, that we're saved by grace and not our efforts. Ephesians 2, chapter 8, says this, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see, none of us achieves or earns our identity in him. The truth is that we're all sinners before him, right? We're not deserving of this. I know it sounds harsh, but that is what scripture says. Scripture tells us that none of us were really worthy of this, but because he loved us and because he wanted us reconciled to him, he showed you grace. And he showed me grace. How many of you are thankful for grace today that you've been showing, right? Showed us grace. And maybe you're here today and you've never received this grace. And I just want to let you know his offer is open to you today to receive that freely. And so this needs to be in our thinking so that we don't end up tiring ourselves out and seeking after that which we can't earn, but need to simply 
receive. And that's a work of grace that God does in our lives. You see, sometimes we live like a hamster on a wheel, right? You're running, you're running, you're working hard, you're doing all sorts of things. You're like this hamster on a wheel, but you never actually get anywhere. You stay in the same spot because it's misguided, it's misdirected. And right thinking starts with knowing that you're loved and that you're accepted and that you are a recipient of God's grace. And none of this is of your own doing. Because there's another way that we can be led wrong here, into wrong thinking. One way is to just beat ourselves down and not ever give ourselves a break and not accept God's love. But the opposite way is where we prop ourselves up and pat ourselves on the back and have pride as if we did anything to end up where we are in Christ. The opposite can be truth, right? You see, there's a story in the Gospel of Matthew that illustrates this perfectly. It talks about these two gentlemen who went to go pray. It's in Luke chapter 18, and beginning in verse 9. And it, the parable starts off by saying, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told the story, this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, give a tenth of all I get. And he was prideful. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. I love that Jesus included this story in the gospel. It teaches us to have a proper mindset, right thinking about who we are in him, right? Because the opposite of never giving yourself a break is perhaps propping yourselves up above people as if you didn't need to earn your place in Christ. But you and I need his mercy as much as anyone else, amen? We always need his mercy. And so let's never allow our thinking to forget that. And good works are awesome and they should happen, but they got to flow from that place of knowing you're loved and you want to please your father. They're never to earn something or, or at worst show off and prop yourself up here above other people. God loves us, amen? amen. Finally, a, a, fourth, a fourth thing I want us just to look at quickly is this. We want to think about right thinking. We need to love God and we need to love people. In Matthew, Jesus was being questioned by the Pharisees and they were actually just doing this to get him in a trap, to get him into trouble. They wanted him to say the wrong thing. So they were asking him a bunch of questions. And if you go through this chapter, you'll read how all these different groups of people, and it identifies who they were, start asking Jesus questions. And it says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, that was the group who asked the previous question. He silenced them. The Pharisees got together, and one of them, who was an expert in the law, tested him with the question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these other two commandments. And so they wanted him to probably pick something specifically, then they could have given him trouble for what he, he left out. But Jesus answered this with such wisdom. Because if you go through the laws, they're going to fit into one of these two things. 
our love for God and our love for those around us. Our love for him and our love for people. You see, the NLT translation, the one that we memorize our scriptures in, says this when it talks about the second. It says, a second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so these two commandments work together. They're not independent of one another. When we act like they're separated, we kind of miss the point here, right? And so sometimes I think we have a tendency to have what I call like a vertical faith, where the faith is between us and God, where we're more concerned about how our behavior affects our standing with God than how it affects those around us. And this is tricky, okay? This is not easy to, to navigate because we can justify it, you know? We can justify, you know, that we want to please God first, and of course we do. Of course you want to please God first. But Jesus came, not so that we could have loopholes, but to give us a new commandment. And this vertical morality, us and God, assumes that God is most concerned with our behavior and how it affects him. And of course, that's a huge aspect of loving God, the first and greatest commandment. But when asked what the greatest commandment was, Jesus said, love God, but the second is like it. Love your neighbor. And so we have this vertical faith, our relationship with God. But in this world, we have this horizontal faith and how you and I treat each other. And how you and I treat those around us. Love God. But you see it a lot in how you love people. You see, our faith is both. It's a faith that affects how you and I treat each other and how we treat those around us. Our relationship with God affects how we treat people. Namely, brothers and sisters in the faith, but also even those who we differ from. You see, if you ask the first century Jew what it looked like to love God, they would have probably said something like this. They would have probably said, obey his commandments. And Jesus built on that by answering the question, what is the greatest commandment? Well, he said, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first and greatest. But the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, love for God, one way love for God would be demonstrated and authenticated was by loving our neighbors and those around us. And the truth is, is that you please God, and you love God, and in some strange ways, I think you even worship God by loving those around you, by caring for those around you, by knowing the right thinking, that we need to love him, but it's also important on how we treat and love one another. Are you with me? And how we care for each other. And we don't live by feelings or instincts all the time, right? We don't become reactionary. We don't simply look out for ourselves. But the right way we love God is very much in how we love and treat him, but also one another. And so right thinking, I think, happens when we know our identity and when we know our standing in Christ. And when we begin to think of him, and when we like him, and in turn, that leads to right thinking. I think it leads to right living. And so I'll ask the worship team to come up here. But I'm just going to leave us with four quick thoughts. And by quick, I mean really quick. So what are some things that we can do to develop the habits of right thinking? Well, all we did today was we looked at portions of scripture. We looked into the word. We looked into what the text says about God. And so the first thing I would say is find yourself in God's word. 
Find yourself studying the word. Become a student of it. Come back next week, actually, because I'm pretty sure the uh, topic next week is going to be talking about ways in which we can study the word and, and become greater in knowing God's word. And for some of you, you don't even know where to start there, so we could help with that. But find yourself in the word. Allow God's word just to permeate and just to, to guide you and lead you and direct you. Number two, correct thought processes that don't align with the truth of God's word. There are many processes that don't align with the truth of God's word that we tell ourselves sometimes. Maybe you've gotten too critical about yourself or others. Maybe, you know, you were like me when I was younger and you just, you can't seem to accept this fact that God would love you or that God would care for you. We need to correct these things. And the way we bring correction to our lives is that we find out what the truth of God's word says. His word is foundational for us. Amen. Number three, take your concerns and questions to him. Take them to him. I talked about earlier how we live in a self-sufficient society, and sometimes, you know, I want to figure out everything for myself on my own. But, you know, change really happens when we bring our stuff to him. And when we come before him, and when we love him, and when we share with him, and we ask him to lead us, ask him to guide us, ask him to give us truth, we can trust him today. Amen? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And finally, number four, and this is how I'm going to have us end this part. Follow the Philippians 4.8 principle. We're, in a moment here, we're going to worship and we're going to just sing a couple songs. My encouragement to you is to allow your hearts and your minds just to really focus in on what you're singing and really just engage with God. Allow him to speak to your heart. Allow him to guide and direct you. But the last thing I want to leave with us is this Philippians 4.8 principle. It says, and now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. The reason why the Apostle Paul says one final thing is he's just been encouraging the church. And he's been giving words of encouragement to the church. But here's what he wants to say to them. He wants to say, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable, right and pure, lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. How many of you know God's worthy of our praise tonight? Amen.